Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get started today, I want to let you know that after recording the interview with Gregor Gregerson, I got massively interested in the topic of electric vehicle metals as an investment. I took everything I learned from Gregor, plus a couple hundred hours of research, and compiled them down into a special report. I break down why electric vehicle metals is a space you really should be paying attention to, what the opportunities are, what the pitfalls are, and most importantly, how you can get involved. I think you will see that the world is changing, fortunes are being made, and by the time you hear about it on the mainstream media, it will be too late and you will have missed your chance. In my daily life, I travel the world searching for unique opportunities. I put an intense amount of due diligence into my research, and when I find something really extraordinary, I share it with my subscribers. This is one of those times. Now, I was thinking about charging for this special report on electric vehicle metals. Maybe $97 or $197. Or maybe it'll just be a part of my paid subscription newsletter that I'm working on. I haven't decided yet. In the meantime, I don't want to delay. This is timely information, and I want to get this special report into your hands as fast as possible. Therefore, I will let you have a copy of it for free for being a loyal subscriber of the podcast. If you really want to dig into electric vehicle metals as an investment, to learn about the opportunities, how to protect yourself, and what the exact steps are to get started in the most profitable way possible, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EVM. That's EVM for electric vehicle metals. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EVM. Now, without further ado, enjoy today's interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is the founder and CEO of Silver Bullion, a precious metal vault company in Singapore. His company markets gold, silver, precious metals, and most notably, he has created a peer-to-peer lending platform where you can borrow money or lend money with very low lending fees. He has lived as an expat for roughly 38 years and actually renounced his German citizenship to become Singaporean. Please welcome to the show, Gregor Gregerson. Gregor, how are you doing? Very good. Very glad to be here. Awesome to have you here. I'm really excited to hear what you're working on. Why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory and how you got to Singapore, how you got working in precious metals? Well, I got to Singapore because, as you mentioned, I've been sort of traveling almost my whole life, about 12 years in Italy, about eight years in Germany, about 10, 11 years in the United States, about 10 years in Singapore. So what happened is that by 2005, I was back in Italy to help my parents sell vacation rentals, which we had. And uh, after that was done, I essentially 
ended up looking for a job and moving back to Germany, so it was a better place to work. And I wanted to run my own company. But being in Germany, it was actually very difficult to do so because a software engineer, if I wanted to work with a software engineering company, uh, I couldn't do that for more than a year. Or else the government will come and say that I'm a fake employee-employee relationship going on. So essentially, I became an employee in Germany, worked in Germany for three years, and figured out that I was paying 80% taxes. And uh, I really didn't want to continue doing that. So I sort of took a six weeks vacation and I went on a trip around the world, backpacking, looked at different countries, and I found Singapore. And I bought this book called From Third World to First World, written by Lee Kuan Yew, which was the prime minister of Singapore. And it was pretty much an instruction manual on how to build a successful state. And I was so impressed by it that I pretty much said, I'm going to move to Singapore. And that's essentially what I did. I I ended up quitting my job in Germany. I tried to convince them to open a subsidiary in, in Singapore. I couldn't quite get them to do it. But when I moved to Singapore, they asked me to work from Singapore for the company, uh, which I did. And being German, we are taxed on residency, which means by the time I moved to Singapore, I was under the Singapore tax system. And Singapore said, well, if you're earning some money in Germany, we don't care. We don't, you don't have to pay Singapore taxes. I didn't have to pay German taxes. So I worked for the same people doing the same thing. I just changed jurisdiction, and I ended up earning four times as much money because that's about how much I went into taxes. And that was one of the points of why I moved to Singapore. But uh, ultimately, I fell in love with this country because it's an incredibly international place. It's the only government I found where the government really seems to be doing what's best for its people for the long term, as opposed to just politicians trying to win the next election cycle. And I didn't think a country like this existed, but the more I learned about Singapore, the more I was, uh, became a fan of it. And eventually, as, as you mentioned, it culminated in me uh, giving up German citizenship and becoming a Singapore citizen. I live here now. My wife is Singaporean. My daughter is Singaporean. And yeah, quite happy. So that's, that's how I ended up being here in Singapore. So maybe I misheard you, but did you say 80% tax with a an eight? Yes. <laughs> I thought Canada was bad. Well, the way it works is if the employer pays you $100, in Germany, you also have to pay 97 to the government. Part of that is for a pension system, which is going bankrupt anyway. Various taxes, unification tax, religion tax, there's a lot of taxes. So the employer has to allow $197, which I'm supposed to be getting 100 but the employer will have to withhold $48, for my taxes, which means I'm being left with $52. Now, if I take this $52, or euros in this case, and I go to the store to buy something, say VAT or sales tax is about 20%, which means that I'm being left with about $42. And if I put the money in the banks, they're going to pay taxes on interest, on capital gains, and just about everything else you do. So you add it all together, and you will find that as an employee in Germany with a decent salary, you end up paying about 80% taxation. And I did speak, by the way, with a board member of Commerzbank, second biggest bank in Germany. And he was telling me that there are so many Germans leaving Germany that the bank has to hire Germans at 
outside of Germany to get good employees. About 200,000 Germans living every year. And these are the people which are just fed up with that kind of taxation. Well, I help people all the time to legally reduce their taxes. But because I've been an expat for 20 years and I've used these strategies myself, I, you know, I've paid zero taxes pretty much my entire adult life. But sometimes I do get a little bit disconnected from this about how bad it has gotten in some countries. Because you're right, 80%, like, that is a mind-boggling number, you know, when you actually do the math and when you break down things and the double taxation. It's just unbelievable. It's sad because the reality is, you know, my colleague, when I was I was working as a business intelligence consultant, and, you know, some of my colleagues, they would earn, say, 5,000 euros per month. But after taxes, they will be left with 2,600. And the employer will be paying around 9,000, you know. So with the 2,600, they had a mortgage to pay, they had a family they didn't have enough money to go on vacation. They didn't have enough money to really save at all anymore, which means that people in Germany are increasingly dependent on the government and on a functioning retirement system, on pension system. And that system, as we all know in Germany, is at least it's being discussed, uh, so there won't be some money to pay for it. So, and, and what's so sad about Germany, a lot of this money is just not being spent well. It's It's we have so much unemployment benefits. And in Germany, I always say they punish you if you work, because as long as you're unemployed, you get all kinds of benefits. But as soon as you do a little bit of work, uh, all these benefits go away. So it doesn't actually make sense to go and look for a job. Once you're out of a job for a while, you know, the incentive not to work becomes bigger and bigger. So once you look at it this way, German policies really seem to be geared towards having as many poor and as many unemployed people as possible. Having said that, right now, German unemployment numbers look pretty good just because of other factors in sound. And German companies obviously are doing well, but as an employee in Germany, you're not doing very well. You're the one who has to pay the most taxes. German corporations don't pay as much taxes because Germany has to be competitive with a taxation jurisdiction for companies. But as an employee... And that's why I couldn't work as my I couldn't make my own business in Germany because I wanted to work as a contractor, um, but I was told I had to have at least three different customers in order to work as a contractor. So I was forced to work as an employee and pay say eighty percent. It's so sad because Germany really is one of my favorite countries. Now, like over the last twenty years, I've probably been there thirty, forty times, and I love the people, I love the culture, I love the food, but it's such a shame that they really essentially are scaring the good talent away. They're pushing the talented people who helped develop this amazing country overseas, you know, and, and I feel really bad about this. I feel really sad because I want to see Germany do well and I want to see it stay such a beautiful, pristine, amazing place. But if you keep overtaxing people and pushing them out of the country, they're going to be replaced by less skilled workers and, you know, it's really sad. Uh, yes, and, you know, that's why I believe... Europe as a whole is going to follow the United States and do taxation on citizenship so that they can tax the, the expat Germans and expat Europeans outside of Europe. So talk to me a little bit about Singapore. Why is Singapore different? What really attracted you to this country? And like, what was the process like to become a Singaporean? Because I imagine it must have been quite interesting. Well, what really fascinated me about Singapore is this book. You know, I mean, when I first came to Singapore, it was a very, very clean city. It is very functional. Everything works very rich, obviously. But 
you know, still still just a city. But reading that book was really what opened my eyes because you realize Singapore was a third world country in the 1960s. I mean, very poor. And by, uh, you know, the late 2000, when I was there in 2007, uh, it had become one of the world's richest countries. And, you know, Singapore doesn't have any natural resources. They did it all basically by, uh, through entrepreneurship, through work, through education, skills, and, uh, well, maybe I can best explain it. You know, the philosophy in Singapore is the government says, it's my job as a government to make sure that you have a good education as a citizen. It is my job as a government to make sure there's the conditions for businesses to create jobs. And it's your job to find a job and work. And essentially in Singapore, there, there is not really any, any unemployment help. But having said that, they have some very, very ingenious ways to make sure that wealth is... I wouldn't say evenly distributed, but everybody's getting their fair share or getting, you know, a, a quite a good, a good return. And the way they do that is that, you know, your taxes are very low. Say on 70,000 US dollars in, in taxes, you might be paying 4 or 5% income tax. Now, you do as a citizen or a PR or permanent resident, you have to pay 20%, so into this CPF, which you can think of it like an American-style IRA, meaning it's like a savings account. Your employer will contribute another 16%, which means that 36% of your monthly income goes into this fund. Now, the beauty is that you can use that money to buy a home. You can use that money to pay your mortgage. You can use it to pay education for your kids, but the kids will have to pay it back. You have some decisions on where to invest it, and if you leave Singapore, they pay out the money to you. If you die, the money goes to your kids or to your wife. So essentially, it's the government just wants to make sure you're saving some money. But it's essentially your money. And I can give you an example. My, my father-in-law, he's been a bus driver his whole life. He was not earning very much, but he's around 65 now, 66. And he has $120,000 of money in this account which he's taking some of it out. And he has an apartment which is worth about half a million dollars, Singapore dollars, so around, say, 400,000 US. And that's, you know, on the low end of the scale. So it's quite amazing that, you know, when Singapore, Singapore policy basically says, Lee from you said, if you have a society, no matter what you do, the top 10% is going to do well, the bottom 10% is going to do bad no matter what. It's going to be the screw-ups. You're always going to have that. And since they're 80%, that's the people which you can really incentivize in the right direction based on the policies you have. And he was saying you need to make the laws for these 80%, not for the ultra-rich, not for the ultra-poor, but for the middle 80%. And I feel in Germany, you know, everything is being focused towards the bottom 10%, causing that bottom 10% to grow. Here in Singapore, the laws are just so very pragmatic. And maybe i give you one more quick example. The government is split into ministries, ministries of law, ministries of defense, ministry of education, and so on. And every year, the budget is reduced, not increased automatically, but reduced. 
No, how's that supposed to work? Well, the extra money goes into a common tub, and then each ministry has to try and get that money back out by proposing improvement projects and some other ways of making things more efficient and so on and so on. And it's a very simple thing, but it essentially imparts some competition into the governmental sector, which in most countries doesn't really have any competition. So you take little laws like this, and they're like 100 or 200, and you add them all up, and suddenly you create a very dynamic government, which manages to tax very little, and yet out of the last 25 years, Singapore had 24 of these years had budget surpluses. And as a country, Singapore actually has, has zero debt zero uh, foreign debt. There's some debt there, but essentially that's the retirees, the CPF I mentioned earlier, they're essentially loaning money to the government, which then invested through the sovereign wealth funds. So it's not really a, a normal kind of governmental debt. It's just a transfer to invest the, the retirement. So make a long story short, essentially Singapore is a very, very well-run government. And it is also a very cosmopolitan place. It's a very open society. We have six official religions. We have four uh, official languages, English, Tamil, which is an Indian dialect, Mandarin, Chinese, and Malay, and three big ethnic groups. And about 25 to 30% of the population is, uh, are foreigners. So it's very international. It's very open. It's just a great place. And you know, me, myself, having lived in so many countries, I just felt at home here. Yeah, and when you compare that to a country like the United States, where they have something like $20 trillion, which is a number that, as human beings, I don't even think we can grasp whatsoever. There's, It's such a large number that we don't even understand how to, to process it. And that's what type of debt they're in. And you have somewhere like Singapore, which has no international debt. It really is such a big difference. Yes, and the higher you go on the level of government, the politicians are just very, very smart. Lee Kuan Yew basically said, if you want to have good politicians, you need to pay them. You need to pay them at least two-thirds of what they will be getting in the private sector. And I managed to meet some of the ministers here. I can tell you, I, I brought, uh, you, you know, the book uh, Currency Wars by Jim Richard. I brought that book along to one of the meetings because I thought that might be you know, interesting to him. And it was basically... we. As Silver Bullion, our company, we've, we've grown and we become part of the E50 Club, which is basically this club of privately fast growing companies. And twice per year, we get to meet with ministers because the ministers want to hear what our feedback is about you know, how they can improve things and so on. And so that's, that's how I ended up speaking with some of them. And in this case, for example, one minister, he, he has a degree from the London Business School of Economics. He is an MIT fellow from uh, um, uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of, of Technology. And he was actually, he worked himself up from the Singapore Army as ultimately a three-star general. And, you know, when I showed him the book, he said, oh, I already read the book. And, and that's amazing because when you look at the average politician out there, I mean, there's no way they will treat books like, like Currency Wars and things like this. So. It just makes you feel that the country is run by, by people which really are, are very good at what they do and at, at running the country, uh, as opposed to being, you know, just looking good on TV or, or pandering to a certain segment of the population in order to get the votes. And, and that's really what makes a difference for Singapore. And, and maybe one thing I would 
add is that what most people don't realize, Singapore is, is a very small country. It's about 5.7 million people, 700 square kilometers or so. But they can raise an army of about 950,000 troops. It's very much like Switzerland. There's a two-and-a-half-year military service. Until the age of 40, you'll be going back to the military one or twice uh, per year. And their budget is about two to three times that of Malaysia, of the nearest uh, large surrounding country. So they're very well defended. Um, they're very well run. And they're economically doing extremely well. And they have a policy of being always neutral. So they don't ally themselves with any major powers. They are always that neutral entity. So it's, that's basically why Singapore is considered the Switzerland of, of Asia. Well, I remember reading some, I don't know if they were articles or what they were, but so, talking about one of the main reasons that they had implemented national service. And it wasn't just to defend themselves. It was really to take a country which had such a diverse background of people and make them interact with one another. So you might be Chinese and next to you is a Malaysian and beside him is an Indian, but together you're all brothers and you're all in this together. And that camaraderie really helps Singapore to succeed as a country. Yes, so it was, that's a big factor. The social harmony here is considered very important. Another way in which Singapore did that is, you know, real estate is very expensive here. And, and one of the goodies that you can get from the government is if you're wanting to start a family and you get married and you want to buy a home, Singapore government can actually subsidize you up to 40 or 50% or so of the price of the home in order to help you get the place. And since the other you know, 10% down payment or so, you can only get from your CPF. And that's how young Singaporeans manage to get their own home. But if you do that and say you're a Chinese, then the government, at least in the past, would have said, well, if you want to have the free money, you're going to have to stay in a Malay area. If you're Malay, you're going to have to stay in an Indian area. If you're Indian, you're going to have to stay in the Chinese area. And by doing it, say, basically, there's one more way of mixing up the population, mixing up the races and the religions. And that's how they managed to basically create a racial harmony, because your neighbor is going to be Indian. You will not be speaking English with him, which is a common language. And he might, you know, cook some food which smells funny, but, you know, you're going to be seeing him as Singaporean first and not as Indian. And that's basically one of the ways, again, in a very smart way, and in a way that takes you know, 10, 20, 30 years to play out to, to create a harmonious society, essentially. Well, I think this is a really interesting segue as well, because this really shows the stability of Singapore as a country and why people should feel safe about putting their money there. And so I'd like to take this opportunity and kind of move straight into Silver Bullion and what you're working on. And I can already see why you've decided to base your company out of Singapore. Yes. Well, what happened to me is I work for the German company earning four times what I did in Germany. I could only do it so long because I was on a personalized employment pass and after six months, I was supposed to find a local job. So I ended up working as a senior data architect for Commerzbank, German bank, second biggest bank in Germany. And that was in 2008, second half of 2008. And the first thing Commerzbank did is sent me back to Germany. So 
ended up in Frankfurt. But this time around, I was an expat in my own country, so to speak. I was on a Singaporean contract working in Frankfurt. And that's how I ended up being in the trading room, one of the main trading rooms of Commerzbank, when shortly after Lehman Brothers went. And essentially, I had a first-hand view of the financial system basically coming to a standstill. And for the leaders who might not be as familiar with it, say the financial system, the banks essentially are very, very, very highly leveraged and interconnected to each other. And it's almost like a house of cards. It's one major bank goes bankrupt. Uh, suddenly, they loaned a lot of money to certain banks. They have a lot of positions uh, where they're covering risk with. And if you take that out, you can have ripple effects, which can basically destroy a second bank. If a second bank falls, then basically the whole system goes down the drain. And that's what happened in 2008. And the way this begins is by, in this case, Lehman Brothers going bankrupt and the banks no longer wanting to trade with each other. There was a bank in Germany which transferred a large sum, I think $50 million or so, to Lehman Brothers about five hours before they declared bankruptcy. And it was considered the dumbest bank in Germany. And nobody wanted to become the dumbest trader in Germany by sending money to, say, J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs or Bank of America or any other bank, because who knows? It might have been the next one. And that's where everything started freezing. And uh, we got really, really close to an implosion of the financial system. It was only the bailouts, you know, the billions and billions and billions of dollars which the government ended up loaning to AIG and Bank of America and all these other banks to keep things going, which more or less, you know, allowed us to get somewhat out of the crisis. It never solved the fundamental problems. We have worldwide, we have more debt now than we had in 2008. We have just as much or even more leverage. So the problems are still there, but the experience back then was one, one of, the, of the bailouts and we kind of survived it. And I got to see all of this. And people ended up going out, traders and other people, and they ended up buying physical gold and silver. And I had just read, you know, some books from Mike Maloney about investing in gold and silver. And I thought, geez, that actually makes sense. You know, if the bank in my bank account might not be there, because the bank might go bankrupt, why not take a little bit of my money and buy some gold? And because I've been reading about it, I figured out, well, silver might be even better. So when I went in Frankfurt and I went to the bullion dealer and I said, I want to buy some silver, because silver kept on falling. Silver went down to $9.50 pounds back then. And he told me, well, we don't have anything to sell. We only buy. And so I said, well, that's, that's a funny, funny bullion dealer. Let's go to a proper one. So I went to another one and they told me the same thing. And then I made it a mission to basically try and find some silver. And I went to 14 banks and bullion dealers in the greater Frankfurt area. And nobody had any. And that taught me a big lesson because, A, I had seen how easily the system can collapse. And I had seen that when that happens, people are going out and buying the physical gold, the physical silver, because the world might go down, the financial world might go and implode, but that physical gold and silver, that's in your hand. It's independent of the financial system. And it became worse a lot because... Paper silver prices and gold prices, they kept on falling. Like I mentioned, $9.50. But if I wanted to get my hands on some silver, the cheapest I found was a $36 coin, American Eagle coin, which would normally, say, cost $11, uh, which at the time was selling at 36 on eBay because people wanted to get the physical and, you know, say, couldn't. 
So that's when I realized, you know, in time of crisis, uh, you want to have gold and silver. And so I finally ended up getting a one kilogram bar at the gift shop of the European Central Bank. <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny. I, I, I told the person there that I was looking for this bar and blah, blah, blah. And she said, come back in two days. And I did come back in two days. And sure enough, he's got, he had a Hereos one kilogram bar. I ended up buying it, ended up paying 19% sales tax. Took it back to Singapore, ended up paying another 7% on import back then. And just kind of figured, said, okay, I have my 1kg now. Let's figure out how I can get gold and silver in Singapore. And because there's going to be a bigger crisis coming at some point down the line. And I didn't really, I didn't think about starting a bullion dealership. It's just that once I tried looking for silver in Singapore, there was no place uh, that actually had it. There was a bank which was selling, was selling some gold, but no silver. So essentially I said, well, why don't I figure out a way of, of shipping it from the U.S.? And it took a while because, you know, it took about six, seven months until after the crisis was more or less getting okay before silver supplies started showing up again. But once they did, I basically had them shipped into Singapore, registered at GST registered companies for claim bags, attacks, and so on, and put this silver under my bed. <laughs> Literally under your bed? Yes, under my bed. <laughs> uh, I was still a senior data architect in the bank. But at night, I'll basically spend eight months working on bullion dealership website. And essentially, it was a pretty advanced website at the time. I think it was the first site in Southeast Asia which had live inventory and live pricing for a bullion. And people didn't really know I had it under my bed. You know, if they were ordering some silver, we would have a time when we meet and I would meet them at the train station. So <laughs> I guess they had an inkling that... <laughs> So I would go to the train station, I would give them three bars of silver, and they would give me $5,000. And it, it sounds, you know, adventurous, but makes sense. That was the safest way to get your silver, in, your silver in Singapore at the time, because the alternative was to give it to some guy you barely knew and hopes that three weeks later he will come back with some silver for you, because it was very hard to ship internationally. So uh, that's how, how silver bullion started. After about $800,000 worth of sales, I sort of figured, gee, uh, I think it's time to get an actual office and, you know, get the first employee. And that's how we ended up growing. And, and it's it's been almost 10 years now. And we had about, let's see, in US dollar terms, about $430 million in sales. So you're not keeping it under your bed anymore then? No, no. If, if you look you can see the safe house. We, we have 200 tons of silver now. Uh, there's no way I can keep that under my bed. <laughs> but, you know, we started a journey. Basically, the journey started that day when I was in the trading room at Commerzbank. And I wanted to find a safe place to keep your wealth. Realized that it has to be silver and gold. Realized that Singapore is the ideal jurisdiction. And then built the best system I could, the most transparent system, to store that gold and silver in the safest way possible. Because the more I learned about the industry, the more I learned that there are a lot of shortcuts that are being taken in the industry. And essentially, I wanted to, to create a system that made it impossible for us to cheat and make things as transparent as 
possible because when you build a system which makes it impossible for you to cheat, that's when you can build trust. You cannot ask somebody to trust you, but you can build systems which ultimately will will generate that trust. And as you build trust, you end up, you know, being able to do all kinds of good things. And uh, that was really been my passion to basically build a better and better mousetrap and more and more systems and offer more and more services around the central idea of preserving wealth. We're just going to take a quick break. In the last six weeks, I've been working hard researching, investigating, and talking to world-renowned experts on electric vehicle metals, specifically the metals that are found in the batteries that power cars like Tesla. Elon Musk has built a massive factory out in the middle of the desert to manufacture these batteries, but there's an even bigger story here that I'm starting to uncover. I go in depth on these opportunities I've found in a special report on electric vehicle metals. And right now you can access this special report for free by visiting expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EVM. I don't know how long this special report will be offered for free or how long this opportunity will stay attractive. So my recommendation to you is pause this interview right now, go online and type in expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EVM to get access to your copy of the special report on electric vehicle metals right now. So we started off the conversation talking about Singapore in general, understanding why it is safe, that it is basically the Switzerland of Asia, that they don't take sides, that the government is there to protect wealth, that they have it ingrained in their psyche to save, and the country is not bankrupt. Explain to me now some of these systems that you've put in place to really take away this trust factor and really make things as safe as possible for the investors who decide that they want to put money with you? Yes. Well, when we started with the storage system, we outsourced to, to a commercial world. And as we did this, uh, you know, I, I would go through the contract. And there were two big issues with the contracts that you know, would normally have. So the way the industry works is typically people buy some gold uh, through a dealer. The dealer then outsources to one of the big global uh, vaulting companies and don't really store it, they only store it themselves. Now, the contract between the dealer and the vault, there were two issues at the time. One of it was a mysterious disappearance, not being insured. So in other words, if your gold were to mysteriously disappear, it would not be covered by insurance. And, and you know, when people hear that, they of course become very worried. Now, the reason that's the case is because mysterious disappearance by default means that there's no police report because nobody knows if the gold was there or how it happened. So essentially, the only way to get coverage for that is for the insurance company to really trust you. And they would only trust you if you build a system that is very, very transparent. Now, in our case, we managed to get this kind of insurance. But the other bigger point was a force majeure clause, meaning... A lot of our customers are actually American, and a lot of them are worried that at some point in the future, because the United States has so much debt, there's a possibility of another gold nationalization. Uh, it happened in 1933 under uh, Roosevelt. Uh, essentially, the U.S. dollar back then was backed by gold, and the government couldn't just print more money. But they needed to print more money to build the Hoover Dam and public projects to get out of the depression. So the solution was to simply make it illegal to own gold. That way people could not 
takes the dollars and convert it back into gold. And that allowed them to print the money that they needed to, for public works and so on, as much as they wanted. Um, gold remained illegal until 1971, when uh, essentially foreign governments started exchanging dollars for gold, especially France and so on. They said, well, give us the gold and take back your dollars. And at some point, the U.S. sort of threw the gauntlet down and said, okay, the U.S. dollar is no longer backed by gold now, it's just backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. And since then, of course, we've been creating humongous amount of U.S. dollars, uh, trillions and trillions, over 20 trillion in debt, unfunded liabilities, which are close to 80 trillion. So we are now living in this world of debt. And now the fear is that if people stop trusting the U.S. dollar at some point, since the government is going to have a huge problem. And that's probably when we might be facing another gold nationalization. And if the gold nationalization should be happening, then any vault or any entity or any bank that is dependent on the United States, and that's just about every globally acting company in the world, will basically have to follow U.S. law. And if the U.S. says, send the gold stored you know, in foreign vaults back to the United States, and if the company storing it is an American or American-exposed company, then that gold is most likely going to go back to the United States. And in the contracts, you find what's called a force majeure clause, which essentially covers these kind of cases. And you had to sign a clause if you wanted to store, which stated that as a storage customer, you are indemnifying the vaults against any governmental nationalization, seizure, and so on and so on, by any government anywhere in the world. So any any governmental action by any government. And so, you know, in our case, I had chosen Singapore to be the safe place because in case of financial crisis, Singapore had the reserves and everything was just right. And if I were to put my bullion and the bullion for my customers into a vault which has these clauses in, then they might as well not ship it to Singapore. And these were two of the key reasons why we had to build our own vault. And uh, as we built the vault, we, we had a number of other things uh, that we improved upon. So when we have customers visiting the vault and we encourage people to come and see, there are always four things I tell them. You should ask, how do I know that the gold is actually there? Because many times the gold isn't there. And it's legally not there because people think they're owners when they really own the credit. The second point is, how do you know the gold hasn't been sold to five different people? And how do you know the gold is real? It might be, you know, gold-plated tungsten. And lastly, how do you know it's not encumbered? Meaning that the gold might be might have been leased out to somebody else who might actually have sold it. It's actually a common practice in the industry. So there's a lot of, you know, funny things that can go on because... If you're sitting on, like in our case right now, 230 million US dollars worth of gold and silver, it would be very convenient if you could just take that and you can lease it out or you can have some other use for it. It's the way a bank operates. Because when you're a bank and people deposit money with you, the bank doesn't keep that money. They, they invest it, they lend it out, they professional reserves, they actually lend out a lot more than what they get in, and they use that money. But the problem is that once you do that with gold and silver and a crisis happens, then you're basically the same as a bank and you're inside that system. And 
what we are making sure is that when you're storing with us, that you have what we call systemic wealth protection. That if the financial system goes bust, if the US dollar has a major currency crisis, or if you have hyperinflation, in any of these events, whatever gold or silver you put with us is going to be safe. And the value of that is going to be maintained, and in case of crisis, it's going to eventually go up. And so it's basically like a financial lifeboat. And everything we did is basically to ensure that it's the case. Now, I, I put a lot of details on what we've done and how we did it and how we test the bullion and the type of insurance we have and so on. So it's all information on our website. So, so readers can uh, very welcome to go on there and, and find out about, about this. So to clarify, that even if the United States government decided that they wanted to pull all gold back internationally for all their citizens, they wouldn't be able to get the gold out of your vault. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, give you an example. We have exclusive Singapore jurisdiction. Essentially, if the government of Botswana tells us that they want to have some gold shipped to Botswana, we will tell them no. If the United States will say ship the gold back, we would also say no. Um, because we essentially were very careful not to have much exposure back to the U.S. Essentially, we, we use the U.S. dollar as a currency, but everything else is just completely Singapore-based. And right now, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, once it, it becomes tough, once there is going to be a nationalization request, for us, you know, the decision is already made. It's something that you, you have to set up early on. Um, if you're a U.S.-based company, of course, you have to follow U.S. law. And if you're a global company, you have to follow U.S. law pretty much by default. So what makes us different is that we're essentially a local company, a local Singaporean company, not a global company. And from a risk perspective, from a jurisdictional risk perspective, that's very important. We had one customer, for example, who went bankrupt, and we had a request from some Texas court for the gold in his possession to be liquidated. And we basically told them we don't recognize the authority to do that. And we contacted the customer and told them, hey, this is a request here, what do you want us to do? And he told us to release it, and so we did. But, you know, it has to be the customer telling us. And you have your own vaults. The gold that's in there, it's not being sold to third parties, not being fractionally divided up and sold to multiple parties, which is, seems to be common practice in some other vaults in other parts of the world. Yes, the key factor here is that we do what we call segregated ownership. Now, ownership is a very misused word. You know, most people think that if they put money in the banks, that they own that money. They don't. And it's the same in the precious metal industry. So if you want to actually legally own something, you cannot own a fraction of something. So you cannot own 12.73 ounces of gold. That is always going to be a liability, something somebody else owes to you. But it's going to be on the balance sheet of, you know, whoever opens that wall with that dealer. So what we do is we have about $10 million in the company of net assets, which a big chunk of that is in gold and silver. And that's basically our inventory. And when a customer buys some silver from us, he will basically say buy 2,000 ounces of silver and it will be 20 silver bars, which will be inside these parcels with a unique ID. And because they're uniquely identified, 
they are now a physical object. And that physical object is sold to the customer using an invoice. And that invoice has the ID of the parcels or the serial number of the bars, which basically certify under Singapore law that the ownership was transferred from us to the customer. So that means that the silver and the gold is not our balance sheet, which means we cannot do any of these funny things. In Singapore, you know, they're quite strict with the law. It's actually a criminal offense to, to falsify an invoice. So legally, we are just an agent who stores the bullion for the customer, insures it, and provides liquidity, as well as offering collateralization options. But essentially, the bullion is the customer's bullion. If something were to happen to us, Creditors or something like this, they cannot go after that bullion because it's not ours, it's a customer. In worst case, a liquidator will come in and make sure that bullion goes back. This is a huge difference than a lot because I have been doing a lot of research in the last couple of months about this because I own a nice size portion of gold and silver myself. So it is something that really interests me. So basically what you're saying is that if someone were to purchase gold and silver with you, there would be a serial number or some type of a tracking number. And then if six months, a year, five years down the road, they wanted to take possession of that physical metal, it would be that exact bar, that exact piece of gold or silver that they would get when they took possession of it. It wouldn't be a random piece that you just pulled from your store. This is specifically yours. You actually own this. Yes. And logistically, that's much more difficult to do because it takes three times more space to build a system where you have to be able to access any bar at any point in time. And it takes a lot of work in IT systems to make sure you always know where every bar is. Because in our case, we got about 26,000 parcels, right? And if we put one of them in the wrong place, then it's a heck of a time to find it. <laughs> but our customers, and they do it a lot, you know, they will come over, they will make an appointment, say, I want to come see my bullion, for example, or they want to do an audit. And we will pull up the 25 parcels that they have and they can see it. We also have PricewaterCoopers, PwC, it's one of the big four outing companies, which come in and physically check the bullion. And the way they do it is we have what we call a parcel ownership list. It's essentially one master list, it's about 300 pages or so, which lists the serial number of the bar or the parcel, and next to it is the anonymous ID of the owner. So every customer of ours uh, we'll get a number, and on this master list, he can double-check that each parcel listed is indeed assigned to him. And this list is made available to all customers, and because it's made available to all customers, it's impossible for us to double-assign something or to sell the same bullion to multiple people. It basically creates a lot of transparency. And as mentioned, PwC does physically check against it. That's about 40 30 to 40 percent of all bullion stored once per year, and Bureau Veritas does it three times per year. So basically, on a quarterly basis, we have auditors coming in and checking 30 to 40 percent of all the bars, of all the parcels being. Set. So you even have independent auditors come in and check your books, check the numbers, and make sure that everything is correct. Yes, and you yourself can come and have it checked, or you can ask a, a representative to basically come and do it. So. That's what I mean with transparency. You know, if, if my position is that if somebody is drawing gold for you, then you should be able to go and see it. And uh, that's basically what we are able to do, what we are doing. And you can see videos of the facility from our website. Uh, then you have an idea of what it looks like. And 
uh, how it's being parcelized and tested and so on. And you guys actually do more than just gold and silver. When I was doing my research on you, I saw that you're getting into a lot of the electric vehicle battery metals, so things like nickel and cobalt. Can you talk to me about some of those types of opportunities as well? Yes. You know, I, I stumbled across it about the middle of last year, so about a year ago, and I, I became utterly fascinated by it because I realized that this is, I, I'm not sure once in a lifetime opportunity, but you know, it's definitely a, a macro trend, which you're going to see every 30 to 40 or 50 years or so. And essentially, to boil it down to a nutshell, since 2010, the cost per kilowatt hour, which is the unit of measurement for electric for battery storage, basically, for electric cars, went from $1,000 per kilowatt hour to about 150 now. So it, it fell 85%. And because it, it's fallen so much, electric cars are getting better and better. I mean, in 2010, you know, your, your golf cart, that was about as far as you can go with electric car. Um, today... We are having electric cars. It's just been announced that next year we're going to have um, a Tesla which can go 0 to 60 miles in 1.9 seconds and has a range of 650 miles. So uh, these cars are now starting to, to beat you know, um, combustion cars by sometimes crazy margins. They're still more expensive. But if you look at the technology, you will find that these cars will continue to fall in price because there's still a long way to go in improving these batteries. And it is estimated by, by quite reliable sources that we'll be hitting a parity where the price of combustion engines, powertrains actually, and, and electric cars will about hit, hit equality. So will be the same price around 2022 or so, or 2023. It depends a little bit on countries and so on. But when that happens, as electric cars get better, there's going to be a huge demand for it because it costs only one-sixth to one-eighth the cost to fill up an electric car to basically charge with electricity. It's only cost to use gasoline to do it. And an electric car has no maintenance. There are almost no moving parts. There's no transmission. It doesn't need any oil. It doesn't need any gas. The only liquid is windshield wipers, essentially. And as these batteries get better, you can basically see a huge demand coming up. Now, there are about 160 car models coming out, new electric car models across the world. Volvo has announced that by 2019, they will cease building combustion cars. They will have only hybrids and purely electrical cars. In China, by 2019, 12% of cars have to be electric. India decided that by 2030, it will be illegal to sell combustion cars. France and England did it by 2040. And uh, companies, the Germans, like Volkswagen, they kind of didn't really do much for a while, but now they're in it, you know, in a big way. Volkswagen is converting 16 factories to electric vehicles and just invested over $25 billion in electric vehicle metals. So I was also in China about three months ago, and China has 400,000 electric vehicle buses now. So entire cities are running on electricity because there's such a big pollution problem and because it's cheaper. And as I was driving there, 
Sakari was in those combustion engines, the guy, the guy told me he can only drive five days a week because my number shield ends with a three, and on Fridays and Tuesdays, I'm not allowed to drive. But if I have an electric car, I can drive any time. So some pollution control things that they're doing. So everything is really pushing people towards buying EV, and EV are getting so much better, so much quicker. That is you know, a trend which is really going to be unstoppable. Now, that's the demand section. Now, from a supply side, the interesting thing is that these batteries essentially have different chemistries. Now, in the modern type of batteries which are used in the EV, they, the cathode of the battery, which is basically where all the action happens, it's mostly made out of cobalt, nickel, and manganese. Now, it's called a lithium-ion battery because there's a little bit of lithium between the cathode and the anode, but that's only 2% by weight. And it's not really set... It is relevant, but, you know, it's most of the weight is really made up by, by these other metals. And in these chemistries, nickel is actually what holds the charge. The more nickel you can put in your battery, the more power the battery will have. Cobalt is needed to prevent the battery from exploding or burning up. So five years ago, the batteries used to be one-third manganese, one-third nickel, one-third cobalt. Today's batteries tend to be about 55 to 60% nickel, with the rest being evenly distributed in cobalt and manganese. But the industry is moving towards our 811 chemistry, which is going to be 80% nickel, 10% manganese, and 10% cobalt. So you can essentially see how the amount of batteries needed is going up very, very quickly. There are huge investments being done. Some people might be familiar with the Tesla Gigafactory, but just the Gigafactory essentially is, is Tesla's super production fab. It's actually doubling world production of batteries as of 2014 production or so. But Tesla announced that they will be building four more. And to be honest, the Chinese production of batteries are going to dwarf that of Tesla. Uh, China is really the leader in this world right now. And they're investing crazy amount of money in these batteries. So uh, demand for nickel and cobalt is going way up and lithium. And you will find that lithium has already gone up 400% since 2012 or 13 or so. Cobalt has gone up around 250% in the last two or three years. And nickel has not. Nickel is still at 25% of its 2007 high of $54,000 per ton. Right now, nickel is trading around $13,500 per ton. So essentially, it's very, very cheap. And the interesting thing about nickel in particular is you need to have a high-grade nickel in order to to be usable for batteries. And that's called a class one nickel. And only about 45% of nickel out there can be used for batteries uh, cost-effectively. So once you put these things together, you will basically find that there isn't that much nickel around and there will be a lot nickel to be, that will be needed for these electric vehicles. And with nickel prices being so low, you essentially have very little downside because nickel is very close to the point of the cost of production. And you have a huge upside, because you can basically get all the gains of the electric vehicle cars and the increased demand for these metals, with, again, very little of the downside. So nickel is sort of my favorite metal when it comes to 
to investing in the electric vehicle uh, story. And does Silver Bullion offer services like this that people are able to get involved in this type of metal? How does that work? Yes. So basically, as, as I mentioned, uh, many of the things I told you, I basically studied over the last year, essentially. And what prompted me to start offering nickel was the fact that as I was talking with traders, people wanting to put positions up in nickel, you know, traditionally, they will be buying future contracts because future contracts give you a lot of leverage and it's easy to get in and out and so on and so on. But the problem with nickel is that nickel is in what's called contangle, meaning that future contracts tend to expire, say, every two to three months. And if you have a long-term position, you have to move from one contract into another contract. And every time you move over, the next contract might be 1% or 2% higher than the current one. So if you have a long-term position, it becomes very expensive to hold your position. And the trader was telling me it was about 7 to 8% per year. And I said, geez, if that's the case, why can't we just take delivery of LME nickel contracts and store it in a warehouse, insure it, make sure it's, it's a real thing by testing it, and then basically create liquidity and allow it to be collateralized. And essentially do the same thing that we're doing for gold and silver, but also do it for cobalt and nickel. And nobody else is doing it, and we have the expertise in doing it. So we basically went out and we figured out how to do it. We, we take deliveries from the London Mercantile Exchange. Uh, it's always 60 tons at a time. You have to put in about a million, a million two or so. And then we'll end up with these huge uh, nickel book bags. We made sure we're getting the right type. So these are class one briquettes, which essentially are ready to be used and, and liquefied in sulfuric acid to create nickel sulfide, which you will then use to build the battery. So it's the right type that you want for the batteries. And we can basically create liquidity by, by selling it back to the LME. And for a customer, that means that you can just buy... Uh, either 250 kilogram trams of nickel or two ton, 2,000 kilogram bulk bags of nickel. And they're uniquely numbered. And so you buy, just like you do with the gold, you become physical owner of that 2,000 kilograms worth of nickel. And you can sell it back 24-7 to us. Uh, the spread between buying and selling for one of these big nickel bags, it's about 3 to 3.5%. So it's, it's pretty price effective. We charge a fixed storage fee, which at current prices is around 1.3% or so. But it's a fixed price. So as the price of nickel goes up, the percentage becomes smaller. Nickel goes back to 2007 price, for example, you're looking at 0.4% storage fee per year. So it's very cheap. Because these metals, essentially, when you store something, you have insurance costs and you have physical storage costs. And because they're so bulky, most of the cost is a fixed fee. So prices go up, your percentage storage fee goes down. And it turns out to be a very cost-effective way of doing so. And uh, as I mentioned before, I, I think nickel is a very good investment. Uh, cobalt can also be very good. Um, cobalt is mostly a supply story. About 60-plus percent of cobalt is coming from the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is an African country which has quite a number of civil wars and other issues. And if something's happening in the Congo, then you will probably see a huge spike in cobalt price because these gigafactories being built, you know, these might be $2 billion factories and they might be employing 3,000 people. And if you 
factory doesn't run because you cannot get the cobalt to make the batteries, you can imagine how important it is to get that cobalt and people basically be willing to pay any price to get that cobalt. So both cobalt and nickel have very interesting stories in supply-demand dynamics. So, so. so if my listeners agree with us that Singapore is a safe jurisdiction to hold your wealth, and they agree with us that Silver Bullion, with all its different systems in place, is the company to do business with. The insurance that you have in place, the fact that you actually store physical gold and it is yours, it has a serial number that belongs to you, that it is independently audited multiple times a year. If you all believe that this is the company that should be holding your precious metals and you agree with Gregor and myself that metals like cobalt and nickel and lithium are going to have huge upside potentials, if you agree with all of this, then Gregor, what can people do today? Can they visit your website? How would they get involved with this today? Yeah, so you can visit our website. It's www.silverbullion.com.sg. You can also just Google Silver Bullion Singapore and you'll be, we'll be right on top. On our website, you will find just about everything I talked about. I have videos of me going more in-depth about some of these things. We have some links to McKinsey reports on nickel and electric vehicles for example. So we made it easy to kind of show, you know, as far as I can tell, unbiased reports and just kind of show the facts and show in an easy way what I discovered over the years and how we do things. So uh, please come and have a look. Wonderful. Fascinating topic. Thank you so much for your time, Gregor. It's definitely an industry, definitely a opportunity that I'm really going to be looking at putting some of my own money into. And I encourage my listeners to find out more about what you do. Thank you so much for being on the show. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay, Gregor? Thanks for having me. I find conversations on commodities like electric vehicle metals really fascinating, and I've been speculating on things like this for nearly 10 years now. Suffice it to say, a lot of work goes into understanding this. And in the coming months, I will be writing more on topics like this. I'm working on a paid newsletter where every month you will receive a special report detailing timely opportunities that I uncover in my journey around the world. In it, I will break down everything you need to know to make smart investments with double-digit returns. This is going to help you to diversify your wealth overseas, protect your assets, and take control of your financial future. It's called EMS Underground, but it's not quite ready yet. As a test to see how you like this type of information, I've put together a special report on electric vehicle metals. And instead of waiting until next year till everything is ready to launch, I want to get this report into your hands right now. Go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EVM. I suggest you take me up on this offer as I will most likely be selling these special reports for a one-off of anywhere from $97 to $197, or it'll be part of the subscription. And frankly, I will tell you that these reports are worth a lot more money than this. So get your copy for free before anyone else and go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EVM. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming 
to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.